You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here on the Westwood One Podcast Network at CRTV's Northern Command. And it is a quiet week here. Thank God, one of the first quiet weeks pretty much of the entire year um, because now their work is done in Washington. They are all done. But, uh, you know, special weekend coming up. Happy Passover and happy Easter to our listeners and happy first day of baseball to everyone. Really exciting times, even though many parts of the country doesn't feel like spring yet, thanks to the um, climate warming. Uh, Anyway, I meant to put out another episode this week about the opioid crisis. I know many of you have seen my series. I've put out three articles so far. I have two more, at least two more coming to expose one of the most dangerous lies in politics right now. This is a big problem. Um, unfortunately, 40 minutes into my podcast with Dr. John Lilly, terrific guest we had, my computer just busted up on me and Skype popped and I lost everything and I couldn't figure out what happened. And, you know, our amazing producer here, Joe Armacost, the guy I met at WCBM, the Baltimore station, um, and we, we took him over here at CRTV. So he walked me through it and said, Daniel, your disk is full. <laughs> so my hard drive was completely full, and that's why it couldn't save anything more. Um, what can I tell you? My, my seven-year-old knows more about computers than I do. So anyway, that's why we missed our other episode. But we're proud this week to at least give you another Meet the Candidates episode. I really wanted to keep this going, and I'll tell you why. Um, it is a quiet week in Washington, and that's the problem. This should be a raucous week in Washington. We have political adultery after political adultery committed to the pe- against the people of this country, not just conservatives, everyone. It's Americans last. Illegals first. The insurance cartel first. The American patient and doctor last. And we can go down each issue that's not being redressed, where both parties are the same, and we had it all codified in this budget bill, the omnibus bill, and yet, we, we went back to work this Monday, and pretty much all the talking heads, that the few that were willing to speak out against the Republican Party on Fox News for maybe 48 hours, their guns fell silent. You know, it's kind of like someone walks in and uh, finds their spouse in bed with someone else, and you know, rather than reacting the way you would expect, like, hey, how about a, a, a nice cold one from the, from the refrigerator? I mean, that's what we're like with the Republican Party. It's not just that, hey, the elections are maybe two, two years away and we'll wait for it. The primaries are taking place right here, right now, while the very people engaged in this political adultery. And we, we don't even focus as a movement. My colleagues in this business refuse to even focus on highlighting the opportunities to throw out these guys. They're so worried about November when they're likely going to lose anyway, especially with these fools, that they don't ever try to find the proper primary candidates. Now, obviously, if you haven't seen, seen it yet, I'm going to link to in show notes my blueprint of what to do, a four-step plan that really goes beyond primary candidates and how the Freedom Caucus, if they actually were committed to the agenda they say they are, could secede from the GOP conference, still run on GOP ballot access, but A, have a short-term plan to stand on their own two feet, disentangle, disengage from the conference, and B, in the long run, I think this is the only viable plan towards bridging that gap of, of switching to, to a new party. We're going to talk about that more at a later date, hopefully more next week. But at least for now, the people that are willing to run against the incumbents, I, I promise you guys, I would offer a platform so you could hear them out, see if they're viable, see if you like what they're saying. And that's why we started this Meet the Candidate series. So this is our sixth episode. And today, we're going to have on 
Dr. Richard Moss. He's running in Indiana's 8th, 8th District. This is the southernmost part of Indiana. And he's challenging Representative Larry Bouchon. Now, Larry Bouchon is the quintessential example of our problem. He was elected in the Tea Party year as a Tea Party conservative. And obviously, needless to say, he's a was a Boehner bootlicker. Um, now he's you know, a reliable vote for Ryan and McCarthy will not buck leadership, will not offer a vision on a single issue. And obviously he voted for the omnibus as well, but there is a challenger and Richard Moss challenged him two years ago. I had a respectable showing came up short, like almost anyone who challenges an incumbent, but he's running for a rematch. And Dr. Moss, just, you know, a little bit about him before we bring him on. He's a board certified head and neck cancer surgeon that who's joining us actually just you know between surgeries still uh, working full time while campaigning he's been practicing for 20 years in Jasper Indiana he's also been writing about public policy for about 3 decades and we'll try to post some of his articles online um particularly about healthcare he's been you know fighting uh for for healthcare freedom since Hillary Care back in the 90s and um also, interestingly enough, he's also somewhat of a businessman, too, multi, multi-talented. He's a founder and owner of the Bronx Bagel and Simply Pasta Bagel Shop in southern Indiana. Now, if a guy from the Bronx could come and bring bagels to southern Indiana, just maybe he could bring constitutional conservatism to Washington. We're going to find out. Hey, hey, doctor, are you on the line with us? Yeah, great. Hey, that that was a great intro. <laughs> Bagels and conser- uh, constitutional conservatism. So, <laughs> I am totally on board for that. I appreciate that. Thank you. So, so and, first uh, off, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Just just first off, and you know, we could obviously take this any direction you want to go, any any issue you want to discuss with our audience. Um, but you know, the first thing is obviously. You know, like I told my audience, we're going to conduct interviews a little bit different when someone's challenging an incumbent versus an open seat. When someone's challenging an incumbent, legitimately everyone understands, yeah, well, that guy's kind of with us. Um, The first question everyone asks is about viability. So last time, I'm assuming you got about 40% against uh, Bouchon? Right. Is that correct? 40%. so it was 35% to be so 30, 35%. Right. Okay. So yeah, I mean that that's that's really the tough hill to climb, you know, to get past that. What what mistakes do you think you learned from last time and how do you think you're running a better campaign and why do you have a shot that people should in, in this audience should give you a, a look and possibly donate to your campaign? Yeah, thank you. So, you know, we got in very late to be honest last time. It was uh, in late October, uh, and even with that, and the primary is May 8th, so, and then you got the holidays, and you've got, you know, the first month or two, it's, it's cold, it's winter, and not a lot of campaigning, and so we managed to get 40,000 votes, uh, and 35%, really with about two or three months of effective campaigning. Uh, you know, we work very hard, but you know, obviously it's it's not ideal. So we've been at this now, you know, for really more than a year. I mean, I've been going to all the events, <clears throat> all the counties, you know, the Lincoln Days and other events and parades and, and so on. And the, you know, we're seeing people now, you know, not the first or second time, but the fifth, sixth and seventh time. Uh, you know, so there's that part of it. You know, we were way ahead of it and, and we've been out there. I write articles on a regular basis. We also have an incredible team. I and mean, we got these, if I can say young Turks, uh, you know, the new generation. Uh, I don't use the term millennials, but anyway, let's just say that <laughs> the new generation and uh, totally savvy on all things email marketing and uh, social media and digital media. And we have a major uh, effort in terms of social media, digital media uh, marketing and, and email marketing. We have large lists that we've uh, gathered, you know, over, you know, the last six months or so, and, you know, tens of thousands. Uh, you know, we have, you know, we're going to run TV. Uh, we're going to run regular print media for the, you know, the older people that tend not to be, uh, you know, on the computer and so forth or on the internet. Uh, we will have a, a vast canvas of radio advertising. Um, and uh, let's see what else we have the, uh, so even, yeah, and, 
I'm trying to think. But anyway, so, so, so you're you're in this you're in this for 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 real. Um, even yeah. though you're you're working full time, right? True, true. But you know, most campaigning is evenings and weekends. So you know, it's just you got to be prepared to to work hard and get out there a lot. Uh, and you don't have a lot of time off. But you know, we go to all the parades and you know all of those things and. Uh, it, so, I mean, we're very active. We have the other thing I should mention is we have a intense ground game, uh, you know, big phone banking, big uh, door to door campaign in which, you know, people are actually knocking on every single Republican primary voter door in in their particular county. And so we're picking up uh, huge uh, counties in that way, uh, which to me, if, if I had to pick one, I, if you really had a, a good team that was going to really go out and and knock on every door because not everyone really has the appetite to do that. But if you really had a crew like that, a very devoted crew, that still is, is the ultimate way to, to, to market your campaign. And uh, so I, it's just a multi-pronged, full-scale, comprehensive uh, effort to uh, you know to really uh, get my name out and get my message out. We've had a lot of TV interviews as well. Uh, with the dominant town in in my district is Evansville. It's our biggest town. And they have the biggest uh, paper and the biggest uh, TV networks. And so we have been able to secure uh, TV interviews and we'll continue to do that. Uh, so, I mean, it really is a, a full-service, complete, comprehensive campaign. Sure. Uh, and I, I just think uh, we really – I think he's very vulnerable. And uh, I, I'm just hearing things, and uh, I, I, my sense is that uh, he's quite vulnerable and that we are going to uh, pull out a victory. All righty. So th- then the next obvious question at this point is you're a successful head and neck cancer surgeon. You have your, your own practice. Why in the world would you give that up to go to Washington and be one of 435 people? My question to you is this. For our listeners, I, I don't know you that well. I've got to know you a little bit better the last, last couple of weeks or so. Um, but you are a listener to the conservative conscience you're a reader of conservative review crtv you're very well aware of what is going on in washington the issues the legislative betrayals how do you feel one person could make a difference how do you feel by going up there obviously you know again i think people would expect you're running against an incumbent from the right you'll vote against these bad budget bills but just one more member of the Freedom Caucus, what is that going to do for conservatism? You know, the dominant feature of the political climate today is just that we are swimming in a cultural ocean, a cultural narrative cloud that is completely dominated by the left. Uh, And, you know, we're all aware of how the left absolutely controls the towering heights of culture, opinion, education, the media, Hollywood, and entertainment, music, on down the line. So everything we see is their narrative. What I really want to do is it's time for our side to have a narrative. Narrative is about emotions. It's about just, it's a story. It's, it's you know, something that grabs the attention. It's time for Republicans to open their mouth. I, I really can't take it. I mean, they're so weak and pathetic, uh, you know. And you, you're sitting there, and you know they they let the you know the usual Democrats and, and media figures just completely dominate everything, whether it's gun control and you know their efforts to endlessly let's say trash uh, Trump in this case. But you know, nowhere do we see our side making the case. At a certain point. Our side has to make the case. We need cultural warriors. I, you know, I've been emphasizing, you know, and I, you and I have uh, emailed back and forth a little bit. I, I just think where I can come in as a Jewish kid from the Bronx, uh, who, you know, by all rights should be, a, you know, a liberal, a lefty, um, but has a certain insulation, a certain rhetorical armor. Because I've lived overseas, I've done many sort of multicultural things, but I loathe multiculturalism. What I'm looking for is for conservatives in in every venue and and most prominently, finally, within the Republican Party, if that if that works out. I mean, that, that would be my goal. But on the political level, we need a political vehicle 
not just for the policies, which I know you value so much and obviously where the rubber hits the road, but we finally need to get a narrative. You know, it, it's a funny thing. We used to be the dominant, you know, like mainstream culture, those of us who believed, you know, like 50, 60 years ago, you know, faith, family, working and you know, having a job and raising your kids. You know, that used to be sort of the dominant culture. We are now the counterculture. Yep. You know, we're on the outside looking in. They dominate, you know, their bizarre culture, the cultural Marxism of the left, you know, and in, in the movies and music and everything we see around us, you know, this transgender issue, you know, gay marriage, on down the line, they have completely taken over our culture. I will tell you, it is critical that we start learning how to uh, really aggressively and actively, as in every single day, pick a thing. What are we going to hit on today? What is our narrative for the, yep. for the day beyond just the specific policy, but also the deterioration of the culture? You know, the single, you know, the explosion of, of children being born out of wedlock based on the destructive, you know, culture of the left, the sexual immorality of the left, the welfare state that is made, you know, out of wedlock birth sort of sustainable, although it's really not. When do we start to make these cases? That That is really uh, sort of a goal. So can I do that? I, I think it, I have a bit of a platform as a congressman. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I don't doubt it, but I, you know, that, you know, there's some challenges there and, you know, yes, you're one of 435, but nonetheless, we can make some noise and I want to begin to make noise. So, I want to challenge the media and all of their, uh, you know, their assumptions that, you know, are just sort of built in, uh, and, and, and then within the political framework and, and just how our guys, you know, I mean, I'm really sick and tired of them, you know, in the, uh, fetal position, you know, uh, cowering under their desk, uh, sucking their thumbs uh, every time the media or the Democrats say boo. And uh, it's just be bold. I mean, I, I thought, you know, Gingrich was really good with that. And, you know, when he was, you know, the Gingrich revolution in, in the mid 90s, 94, <clears throat> You know, just aggressively on on them all the time, and just you know really turn it around and and just start to you know take on again all their assumptions, the media, the left, you know the whole thing, and aggressively be out there. You know, you know, let's line up a bunch of kids and talk to them about. Hey, you know, children. You know, they love children, right? You know, they exploit them all the time for you know the guns and this and that. Let's get children out. Let's talk about the debt. You know, hey, little Charlie, do you know uh, how much debt? Uh, I, I mean, you know, we do it in, in a way that's tasteful. We show respect for, you know, the children and try not to overly, I, you know, I guess, exploit them. But, you know, what's wrong with, you know, using some of their agitprop, uh, their political agitation that they're the best at? I mean, we have to recognize the left. They know how to do this stuff. This is their thing. You know, we're busy working and raising our families, but yeah. we have to borrow for them. They play the long game and they are tenacious and they, they are not afraid to use and exploit and do whatever they want. I think it's time for us to borrow a little bit from them and begin using their tactics on them. Now, and, and I think, you know, there's a good segue into the issues and the single biggest economic fiscal issue, it is the antecedent to all personal debt, federal debt, state debt, is all health care. There is no counter narrative on healthcare, there is no voice. We're seeing that even, and, and, and amazingly, from a lot of the doctors, such as um, Larry Bouchon, such as Bill Cassidy, a lot of the doctors in Washington, even the Republican ones, don't have a narrative. And I think this is the perfect issue where young voters see healthcare is so expensive, health insurance seems so expensive. No one ever taught them why it's so expensive. So the allurement of free stuff, which is just the narrative of the left, that's their only narrative, that is naturally attractive without a counter-narrative. As a head and neck surgeon, so you're, you're not just, we've, we've had a lot of primary care physicians on this show, you're a specialist. What sort of narrative do you plan to bring to Washington on health care? What sort of agenda do you think will A, speak to the core cause of why we don't have market forces in healthcare, and B, how to sell that to a rising generation? No, I, I think that we 
just have to point to the fact that healthcare is so expensive in this country because of the third party payer system. And the fact that the consumers of healthcare are insulated from the price. And the only other aspect of our economy, if you will, where that uh, exists is, is in college tuition. And it, you know, it's obviously not a coincidence, but the two <laughs> areas of, of our economy where the costs have risen dramatically above and beyond inflation are healthcare and uh, and college tuition, because again, there, there's none of the typical free market forces, the price signaling mechanisms that exist in every other aspect of our economy. You know, why do things get better and cheaper over time? I mean, just you know, you know look at what you have in your pocket. <laughs> you know, you know the screen you're looking at, and and so on. Yep. You know, everything gets better and cheaper, more choice, uh, better quality, and uh, lower lower cost, and it's. It's called the free market. And so what we have to do is implement the normal, typical, regular uh, free market principles, the price signaling mechanisms within these two areas, you know, college and healthcare, but we'll, you know, we'll emphasize healthcare now, uh, as, as a way to begin, uh, you know, driving the cost down, increasing competition choice. And, uh, and so we, we do that in all the tried and true ways. I mean, you begin uh, with price transparency. Uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing, but if the hospital here and then the hospital, you know, across town had actually list their prices, you know, it would really concentrate the mind of, of the administrators and the financial people within each of the, uh, of the hospitals and so forth that are so insulated from that, you know, because they bill it to insurance and they got their little uh, deal as you know, the hospital uh, insurance company cartels, uh, as, as I, I, I know you uh, use that term, and I agree with that. And, uh, you know, hospitals are major cost drivers. They're tax exempt. I mean, there's you know, really a lot of corruption there. But anyway, let us just say all healthcare providers begin by uh, listing their prices, and you'd be amazed <laughs> the salutary effects that that alone would have. But beyond that, I think we need to even the tax playing field. You know, I mean, you know, it goes back to the 40s, World War. To 40, 1943, 46, you know, with the wage price controls, and then uh, they made it that uh, in 46 that the uh, the benefit of healthcare, uh, which is how the companies competed for workers, which were not really available, so they had to offer that because they had wage price controls. They offered healthcare. That's really you know everything begins with government policy. <laughs> so you know it just it takes 20, 30 years to see the effect. So by then you've lost the connection, yep. and and that's always the problem is there's sort of a delay with these government policies that do so much damage, but then by the time you realize the damage, uh, it's, you know, you've sort of lost the connection, but it really emanates from 43, 46. Wage price controls, uh, companies had to compete for workers. They offered health insurance. Then in 46, they made it where you didn't have to uh, actually even include that as income, so that it's totally tax-exempt. And, you know, if we're going to keep that, I mean, it'd be better probably just to get rid of that, but politically, that may be difficult. So it might be better and easier just to say, you know, offer even the tax playing field between those who are buying single buyer, you know, not through their employer and uh, just individual buyers and they, sure. they get the same tax benefit. That's something that, you know, that would save a lot of money and, you know, that would open up the single uh, uh, buyer market, which to me is critical. That's, that's everything. Um, then I would, uh, to me, I, I think it's critical we start talking about de-linking uh, insurance from the employer. Uh, and again, the way to do that is uh, to voucherize it. You know, all right, so you have a smorgasbord of, you know, just sort of like what they give the congressman. They have this whole uh, FEHP uh, plan of, uh, you know, of nice policies. They can pick and choose. Well, let's offer the same thing for, you know, American workers, employer-based, uh, uh, those who receive their insurance employer-based. And instead of it being something that's uh, tied to the company and to the job, they get to buy it. They can, you know, depending on, on the plan, if they want to contribute their own or if they want to save it. I mean, it just, you know, there's options there and they pick it. But the main thing is they take it with them. It's not some calamity where they lose the insurance if they uh, lose their job or if they quit or they just don't like 
the job. They take the insurance with them. I, sure. I think that's something we should look look at. So again, this whole concept of voucherizing, and uh, you know, it's sort of as we said, and, uh, you know, food stamps. Or, you know, we don't like food stamps that much, but it hasn't destroyed the market. And the reason is, you know, people just get basically a voucher and they go in and they buy it. So sure. No devastation of the market. The market is maintained. Yeah, and and, and, and I think to just to speak to your point there, what what you mean is with with as Trump says, the Medicaid. Um, well, the Medicaid has a lot of problems because not only is it causing the debt, obviously driving up the federal debt, and is um, insanely responsible for state debt because it's the single biggest driver of state budgets, but it goes in the hands of the insurance cartel, which by extension um, creates a healthcare conglomerate cartel on the provider side. So from from about mid-2012, and I'm curious from your experience if you could speak to this, from mid-2012 to mid-2016, and that was the key growth of the implementation in Medicaid expansion, the number of hospital-employed physicians grew to 155,000. It's a 63% increase in just a few years. Um, you know, partly because Medicaid is one big block of a massive block of money that you don't have individual consumers coming in. Like you mentioned, food stamps, you go to your store. It's all a block through the managed care. So it takes a cartel on the provider side to deal with a cartel on the insurer side. Plus, they pay the facility fees to those that are hospital conglomerates. Even if, you, even though you're not in the hospital, you get higher reimbursements, and boom, we have the destruction of private practice. So, are you are you employed? First of all, are you employed by a private practice or a hospital? And could you speak at all to what you've seen the last few years in terms of the acquisitions and the buy-ups of the big, you know, healthcare conglomerates such as MedStar? Uh, uh- Incredible transformation. Well, you know, no, I, I am self-employed, the last of a dying breed, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, single solo practitioner. But you know, when I first started uh, in '92, the uh, there was no such thing as an employed physician. And now it's really just about to the point where there's no such thing as a uh, self-employed physician, let alone a solo practitioner. But you know, we have a few groups. Thank God they're hanging in. Uh, but uh, you know, it's uh, um, a tremendous uh, transformation uh, in this way over the last uh, 10 years. And, and maybe there has been uh, this uh, added push uh, 2012, 20, you know, and, and let's just say that, you know, since 2012. But uh, so it's dominant. I, I think it's a, it's a big loss, uh, you know, to lose the independent physicians as, you know, just a voice, you know, uh, uh, as, as a as a counter voice to, you know, to the power uh, and domination of the hospitals. I mean, you know, they're very powerful. And uh, now that they're employing, you know, whatever that number is, 90% of, of the doctors, and certainly just about all of the new ones. So, I mean, yeah, some of us old timers are hanging in there. But, you know, let's say after we retire. I think, oh, that's, that's a good it. point. Yeah. No, you're, you're saying the, the trajectory ones. is even worse because if we look at the number, 63% increase in physician employed hospital employed physicians you're saying that number among the ones entering the medical profession is likely a lot higher Oh yeah, they they don't have any interest, and uh, yeah, I I just think maybe it's something that's out there, or they, you know, some type of brainwashing, or they just said, well, uh, you know, now that this option is, is so available, that you know they're just going to do it because they don't want the hassle of the paperwork, you know, and, and believe me, it, it is a hassle to run a business. You know, you have employees, you know, you have bills, you have overhead, you have all, you have malpractice insurance. There there really is a, there there are some reasons why you may want to dispense with that, but to for the benefit of maintaining your independence and your uh, autonomy, uh, and just you know, doctors in general, uh, you know, being an independent voice in in the medical universe, I yeah, it's 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 a major loss. Uh, as far as it you know, being tied in with let's say with Medicaid expansion, uh, you know, perhaps it is. I I don't know that I could cite that. I think it's more of a cultural social thing that's just out there now, where you know the young ones coming up uh, do not want that independence and they prefer really to be employed. Uh, but, you know, they, I'm sure, are given a good deal. But, you know, in the end, you're another employee. Uh, you got to go to all their meetings. These people, in, you know, in their, you know, whatever, their, their nice suits and, uh, you know, they come in, you know, the administrators. And, you know, you know when I see them, it's sort of a different uh, chemistry. You know, I'm, you know, I don't depend on them for my 
my paycheck. You know, I, I can speak, you know, honestly with them, you know, respectfully and all that. But, you know, I'm very independent. They have no such independence. They pay their, you know, they, they write their checks. So, you know, it, it's a big loss. And, and I think, uh, you know, there may be other issues too, patient care wise. You know, I, I don't know that for sure though. But I would just say the loss of doctors as an autonomous, independent voice in the medical world uh, represents, I think, a, uh, a step backwards. No, for sure. So moving on from healthcare, what other issues do you feel there is a particular void of this narrative, of a counter-narrative to the predominant culture that you would hope to fill? Okay, um, I'm going to answer that, but just give me just a couple little things, and then we'll finish on healthcare, like another minute here. But I, you know, and I would voucherize all of the others. You know, in other words, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, Tricare, S Chip, um, uh, the, the VA, uh, and and let people just go and buy their own. Just anyway to complete that. The other thing is, I think you know, as far as uh, allowing more people to engage the the healthcare system, and you know, let's say they're falling a little bit in between Medicaid eligibility and then the uh, you know having enough to to pay for it on their own. You know, uh, you could have some sort of sliding scale subsidy uh, for them to buy again their own insurance. So anyway, just to finish that, and then the usual things: HSAs, buying across rates, you know, uh, state lines, and deregulating insurance, and uh, and all of those things I think are important. Uh, high deductibles and then these health sharing account, well, the uh, the health sharing ministries, uh, which I think is, is is another good way to go. Allow for uh, voluntary organizations to to you know gather up their members and based on volume can offer lower lower prices. So anyway, a couple just to complete the whole uh, and and just quickly I'll mention Switzerland has uh, universal health care, uh, all of it private. Totally 100% private. Uh, it's a small country, you know. And I I don't like really when the left, you know, talks about Norway and exactly. you know, Scandinavia and all that. So we don't want to overdo that. But just to let you know, because it is private, it's not government, and so uh, you know, it is doable in one of the glorious European countries that you know the left always loves. So just to let you know, Switzerland 100% universal healthcare, all the private single buyer. We need to expand the single buyer market and make really everything single buyer. And that way, you can really, again, begin to introduce uh, competition choice, lower prices, better quality. Okay, so that's it on healthcare. So the issues to me, I mean, look, the big issue is immigration. Uh, and, you know, when you look at how utterly pathetic and, uh, you know, status quo, a weak, spineless, sniveling the Republican Party is, which, believe me, is why I'm running. It's not just I have a deeply flawed candidate uh, or opponent, uh, the incumbent, uh, who is truly a tool of the establishment and really not steeped in the issues. And, you know, more or less, I'll do what they tell me, you know, that's fine, it works, and that's good enough for me. And I'll pull up my 52%, you know, heritage action rating, 48%, a, um, didn't mean to mention your competition, but anyway, <laughs> that's fine. 48% on conservative review, uh, and I use both numbers. And uh, so, uh, you know, you know, that's an F. We're not going to get an F. We're going to, you know, try to get 100% really and, and an A. But the, the real issue is that, you know, we, we just don't have a political vehicle for conservative constitutional uh, values, ideas, uh, beliefs, and policies. And clearly one of them is, you know, uh, the rule of law, uh, our nation's borders our culture, our traditions, our sovereignty, uh, and uh, by the way, our language. You know, uh, it is, it's just a terrible thing that, you know, it was such a blessing to the country, that, you know, where everyone spoke English. It was assumed that you came here, you learned English. Now we're bilingual. And a lot of that from corporate America. You know, you know if you really want to know the weakest of the weak, <laughs> it's the corporate world. They're so fast to buckle. They're almost as bad as the Republican Party. I don't know who's worse. But, you know, when you pick up the phone and it's uh, Marca Numero, this one and uh, so immigration and we just need to take the bull by the horns and it's just you know, so I, you know in terms of immigration I just didn't mean to cut you off there I want to kind of steer this to more of a unique angle from maybe what our listeners haven't heard until now you've traveled uh, throughout the Middle East uh, Far East you did uh, a lot of medical work serving as a surgeon, a lot of voluntary work in places like Thailand, Nepal, but also some Muslim countries like Bangladesh. 
What could you say about your experience there to the thesis that I put out this week um, that the president really campaigned on? And how how would you message it in terms of immigration policy when post 9-11, we doubled and almost tripled our immigration from predominantly Muslim countries, where we're now growing that population very quickly, very eerily, ominously walking in the footsteps of Europe as we see you know, the problems that creates this, not, not just the statistical likelihood that you're going to have more terrorism, but the cumulative culture that it breeds that then obviously goes on to create terrorists. How would you message that point, the need to have a more balanced and gradual immigration and the dangers of mass migration from the Middle East, just based on your experience? Well, I would just say, and I must always mention this, uh, I was treated very nicely in Bangladesh. <laughs> Uh, and they knew I was Jewish, and they seemed to really appreciate that a, a Jewish guy was going to their country and helping them. There is a difference between Islam and Muslims, okay? I, I, I do emphasize that. I, I really feel that um, I, I have a, a serious problem with the religion of Islam, uh, and I, I think it represents truly a, a great threat to uh, you know, well, to Muslims, <laughs> if I may say. Sure, uh, I mean, and, it, it, uh, they're the ones being killed the most. Yeah, but it's also, it, it's very much a totalitarian ideology. It subjugates uh, the individual. It represses free will. There's no free speech. There's no uh, freedom of conscience. There's no religious liberty, and there's no free press. There's nothing. Uh, it, it really is a complete comprehensive system for organizing society. And I, I think it's not for nothing that the contribution of the Muslim world uh, to the human store of knowledge for the last 1,000 years is uh, like nothing. And there's a reason for that. You know, when you don't allow for individual liberty and freedom and, you know, private property rights and, uh, you know, contract law and, you know, the ability to form corporations, uh, LLCs, and then free market capitalism, uh, all of those things that we enjoy in this country, but really coming back first and foremost to, you know, liberty. And, you know, we get that, you know, with inalienable God-given rights, you know, and uh, all the individuals are blessed with that. And, uh, you know, that is, to me, uh, combined with, you know, the various threads that fed into that, the Judeo-Christian tradition, which embraces liberty because we are, you know, created in the image of God. This is a unique concept, and it goes back 3,000 years in Genesis. I, I just think we should be boldly proclaiming our tradition, uh, Western civilization, which was honed in further, I, in my opinion, in uh, American civilization, which took, you know, the greatness of Western civilization, all the great literature and and uh, you know uh, music and art and science and technology, and then took it into America and, and really allowed it to, to to develop even further because we further uh, um, uh, advanced the notion of uh, you know the uh, elevating the individual of the sanctity of the individual of individual sovereignty. Uh, this is this is the deal. This is America. This is the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence, um, and that's the difference. So when you have a culture and a a religion that has uh, no notion of that, where you know that's completely unacceptable. Uh, I I would reject them. I you know I would just say uh, again. Individual Muslims that I've met were very kind to me. Uh, a year ago, one of them took a trip from Bangladesh to visit me, to thank me, uh, coming to a Jewish home with all sorts of Jewish symbols uh, available and, you know, obvious throughout my house. And so there's a strong relationship. I always have a welcome to return there. So on the individual level, you can sometimes have good relationships, but just as a matter of national policy, uh, I, I would shut it off. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I, I just, I mean, if you've got a Solzhenitsyn level dissident, a real reformer, you know, like a Al Sisi, uh, you know, the prime minister, president of, uh, you know, he's not going to emigrate tonight. But I mean, someone like him, who actually was uh, Al Sisi of Egypt, the prime minister of Egypt, who was very bold and, and really uh, took tremendous risks to, to. Um, 
you know, talk about the need for, you know, in their Harvard, you know, Al-Azhar, I think, the, the Cairo University that Obama gave his famous <laughs> 2009 speech, you know, uh, and, you know, just anyway, uh, did, you know, the usual apology thing. And, and So, so, and so you're, you're making a dichotomy here, and, and, it, and it's interesting, you're saying the difference between Islam and individual Muslims, and I think, you know, a lot of people have trouble articulating that. I think you've, you've honed in on a specific area of this debate that, that hasn't been put forth that, of course, you could meet wonderful people from all walks of life, but when you bring in people from a culture that's, that's saturated with anti-constitutional values and you bring them here in pretty large quantities um, over a short period of time, as we've seen in Europe, and it's undeniable – that's. I'm just curious your thought on that. The fact that on the one hand you f- feel you were treated very nicely in Bangladesh, and clearly we do get good immigrants from there as well. But on the other hand, we've had recent uh, attempted terrorists from who hailed from Bangladesh. There's the community in Kensington, Brooklyn, where one of the bombers came from, and you know there are mosques there that have ties to al-Qaeda and radicalism. So how do you parse that? Or are you in fact saying that it is not our job as a sovereign nation with our goals oriented first and foremost towards the protection of our own people to disentangle who we think is going to be a Sharia supremacist and who's going to be you know, a productive, pro-liberty American patriot? Uh, so it's very simple. Uh, we don't have to roll the dice with immigration. And no matter who you bring in, and sometimes it's second generation, you know, uh, but my, uh, my recommendation is we shut it down. I, I just don't want to take the chance. I mean, if you're, you know, you have to know, you know, the Pew Research Center and all that, you know, they've done all the studies. If you want, you know, honor killings, you want, you know, women as second class citizens, uh, you, uh, you know, there's a certain reasonably high percentage or plurality of them that embrace the use of terror to achieve, you know, which, which is to achieve political goals. They're okay with Al Qaeda. They're okay with ISIS. I, there's really no reason to subject the nation to that. Uh, I, I just say I would shut it down. I mean, 9-11 was not really so much national security. It was an immigration issue. They overstayed their visas. Those 19 guys, the hijackers, overstayed their visas. My recommendation is to, is to shut it down. I mean, based on ideology, that their views are not consistent. Now, you can make, again, certain exceptions. Uh, it doesn't mean it has to go right down to zero, but pretty close, pretty Close and my ba- and and that's it. We have no obligation. Somehow we managed to survive all of these, <laughs> you know, going back two hundred years without a major uh, Muslim influx. Uh, I know that there are there are good Muslims, and if they, you know, based on some merit based immigration system that is intensely selective. <clears throat> And raises, you know, as with every right to, you know, look at their health. And you know, we used to check out their health. <laughs> sure. It used to be a thing. You have TB and all that. But more importantly, their ideology. You know, if they believe that a woman, a man is entitled to four wives, you know, boom. You know, you can't yep. get in on that basis. And you can I mean, I mean it, it used to be they, they had a category, and, and this was during the open period, not the closed period in the 20s and 30s, the open period in the previous decade, where they had a category called feeble-minded. There's actually a court case I studied on this, Kaplan v. Todd. And, uh, you know, they, they, they would take one look at a family, nice looking family come in and one kid, they, they would look at the kids, say feeble minded, inadmissible. You know, and we could debate whether we'd want to do that or not. But that's that's not the point. The point is, I think what you're saying is the history and tradition of the country was actually to be very selective. It was the understanding that we have our own problems and we certainly only want to immigrate up, not down. Right. I, it's. It's an elective process, if I may borrow your term. And we absolutely don't have to let in one immigrant, zero. I mean, it must be understood that immigration is there to serve the nation's interest, to serve the interests of American workers, American citizens, 
in the nation as a whole. They have to make a very strong, positive contribution. It should be that strict. And almost by definition, if somebody's coming in and among their first moves when they get here is to uh, game our public programs, I mean, it's almost by definition that would be exactly the immigrant we don't want. And yet we have you know, more than 60% of immigrants come to this country and they're on our welfare system. It doesn't make sense. And many of them are illegal. And that's another thing, by the way, I can address. I mean, I, you know, here I am in a small town in southern Indiana, well away from, from our southern border. And I would say 15 to 20 percent of my patients are Hispanic. Many of them don't speak English. I mean, I assume they're immigrants. I don't know if they're legal or illegal, but I can tell you 95 percent of them are on Medicaid. And I'm saying to myself, why are we doing this? Why are they exactly. here? I mean, so in other words, sense. in other words, it's not any worse than an American being on on Medicaid, other than the fact that, you know, we got to deal with what we have, but we don't have to elect to bring in public charges. Absolutely. And when you take it to the staff, I mean, our problem with immigration is certainly worse than than uh, Europe's because they're not necessarily that hostile. Although, believe me, there is this whole reconquesta crowd out there that thinks that, you know, they're they're going to take back, you know, what they think was taken from them from, the, you know, uh, with Texas and then the Mexican war. Uh, there's out there now. I mean, who do they take it from? Uh, we can get into the debate. But the point is, uh, you know, they've obviously, you know, we have of Mexifornia already, uh, you know, California. So, uh, you know, but it's bad. Europe is much worse. So I would be even that much more strict when it comes to Islam, because then you're importing a whole other array of problems we just don't need. And again, Schultz-Nietzsche level, level dissident, Nobel Prize sort of level uh, uh, talent. Uh, oh, sure. I'm, you know, you know, the next uh, Sergey Brin and, and Google. Uh, but the, the truth is, they're not coming from those countries. We know where those kinds of people come from. And I mean, I can tell you, it's England, Germany, Israel, and Canada. And that's about it. Uh, and some from some other European countries. And look, you know, I'm a big fan of Far East and Asia, you know, you know, you know generally, but not to me, I, I would... <laughs> I would. I like Japan and South Korea and Taiwan. I would be. But, but, but again, if you on. have a merit-based system, I mean, that's the thing. It, it will. It will wash this out. Like I tell people, you know, you 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 plot the countries on a graph and you see the welfare usage by immigrant of country of origin, and we have most of that data. It's very much skewed towards pretty much the countries you mentioned. But yeah, you'll have a minority of people that that aren't on welfare and are very productive, and obviously that will all come out in the wash when you have that. That system. Um, we're running just about running out of time here. I have one more question. You should be ready for it if you are an avid listener. If not, this will be a surprise. Um, but nonetheless, we promise to ask all our candidates the following question. Basically, what we have with the primaries is that it never comes down to issues. It all comes down to oppo hits. And what, the minute they sense that you are a credible threat and you're inching up into the 40s, and they could possibly lose. They dump on you all of the every every single thing you've ever done in your life, including things you never did. Now, conservatives are prepared for that, and I think they understand to take a lot of things with a grain of salt. But unfortunately, what we've seen in the past, and we've you know definitely seen before, sometimes you know you could be struck by lightning, and they uh, they hit the lottery, and they actually wind up finding things that are true, and. To put it bluntly, it seems like nobody could keep their pants, pants up to these days. So could you promise our audience, anyone who might be drawn to what you're saying, drawn to your candidacy, wants to support you, that nothing is going to come out that will embarrass the values you're espousing, whether it's an infidelity or a financial scam with your business or something like that? Yes, I can guarantee that. Perfect. Well, yeah, I, you know, just we we always need that confidence um, because, le like I said, this is something that our side, you know, rightfully is pretty consistent about, um, and you know, I think we we want to remain that way, and that's why I just want to ask all candidates that any parting thoughts or issues you want to address before we close up here. You know, I I'm a very much a big fan, and obviously you you speak about it a lot, and and I, I would really try to support it as well. 
you know, the, the courts are obviously out of control. And it's just amazing how the Republicans never say a word about it. And, and you know, we the Congress created the lower courts. They, they can control their geography and jurisdiction. Uh, and we need to be to get aggressive on that. And uh, so, you know, I, I'd, I'd carry that. You know, look, I, I would try to promote term limits as well uh, and, and those sorts of issues. But uh, it's basically a, a truly an, an allegiance to what I call the founders' vision, uh, the vision you know of liberty you know that's tied right into our Declaration of Independence. And I will always draw to and and. Uh, speak of and, and be informed by and inspired by uh, the Declaration of Independence, you know, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which to me are three world historical documents. You know, one of America's great contributions to world civilization, uh, a total radical departure from, you know, anything that had ever existed before. We created an empire of liberty, uh, unique in human history, and, uh, you know, a corollary to that is that we must have a small restrained central government uh, that is restoring power back to the states, uh, to local communities, and to the individual. So those two are sort of mathematically tied. You can't have you know, too big one. That, you know, they both have to be, you know, if you're going to have big liberty, <clears throat> you must have small government. I will be defender of what I refer to as the founder's vision. And, uh, you know, just philosophically speaking, that I will carry that vision and try to make the, you know, the Republican Party a vehicle for that vision, which it obviously is. Is not, but I will fight to make it, whether it's the Freedom Caucus. And in the end, to me, it's ridiculous. The whole Republican Party should be the Freedom Caucus, you know, not like 35, 40 members. So, you know, it's a revolution that I'm seeking, uh, you know, and hopefully with others that, you know, critical mass that we would have there that to really begin actively promoting all of the things that I think most of us and your listeners believe in. Perfect. And where could people find more about your candidacy online? My website, rmoss4congress.com, rmoss4congress.com. That's R-M-O-S-S and the number four, congress.com. All righty. And we will definitely link to that in show notes. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Moss, and good luck on the campaign trail. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. All righty. God bless. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Dr. Richard Moss, board-certified head and neck surgeon running for Congress in Southern Indiana against incumbent Representative Larry Bouchon. And let me know your thoughts on this interview. And as well as that, I want to know who you want me to have on next. Um, We have a couple of people who want to come on the show. Uh, But as always, we will definitely take a census on our social sites and, and my email as well. Feel free to email me. I do usually read most of them if I, uh, you know, unless something's funny and I miss it. But anyway, let me know. Let me know your thoughts on other issues as well. And we're going to get back to some of the hardcore issues, hardcore truths, as well as looking for a strategy to get out of this morass of false dichotomies on issues. And again, part of that, we do have to find better candidates. Let me know what you thought of this interview. And uh, until next time, have a happy, blessed Easter. Happy Passover to our Jewish listeners. Enjoy the baseball season. I'm a big baseball fan. Um, that's where I get all my kinky uh, sports analogies to compare Republicans to. But uh, anyway, God bless you all. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your time. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.